Okay, let's get to John 17. We're ending this year, and we want to continue through our study in the Gospel of John. And it was a very difficult sermon last week, was it not? It was difficult for you, and I know it was difficult. It was difficult for me, so it was difficult for you. Um, and afterwards, I felt like I lacked clarity. And that's just awful. That's just, just I felt so bad. If, if I'm lacking clarity, then, then many, if not all of you, are confused and you know, I'm thinking about last week's message, I, I assigned this lack of clarity to three main reasons. I think there are three main reasons why there was a lack of clarity in terms of our study of study last week. First of all, first reason is the widely pervasive and settled view within Christendom that Jesus prays for believers in John 17, 20 and 21. It is such a settled interpretation. It is such a pervasive view Everybody assumes and takes it for granted that in verse 21, Jesus prays for our unity, that it was hard for me, let alone for me to communicate and for everyone to understand that He did not pray for unity. It takes time for truth to marinate in our minds and for it to become a clear conviction. And it took me weeks to come out from that mindset that Jesus prayed for believers. And to be honest with you, it was, wasn't until the sermon was over that it was clearly settled in my mind that Jesus did not pray for believers. After I preached, I was able to dialogue with many of you and did it make sense? What do you guys think? Were there gaps? Was it incons- uh, biblical? Was it erroneous? And just to hear from many of you and just hear your insights confirm to me that indeed He did not pray for believers' unity in John seventeen twenty one. And I didn't share this last week, and I wrestled with sharing with you this this morning as well. But I I share it with you, not for any other reason, just to share, just to kind of give you an insight into my heart. We 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 were supposed to tackle this verse weeks ago, but in preparing preparing for verse 21, I have a stack of commentaries on my desk, maybe 11 books high. All of them were saying that Jesus prays for unity. Every single one. That's why I took a time out and we went to a tangential study in Saint Corinthians 12 and John 3. <clears throat> because I'm thinking, if all these godly teachers believe that Jesus prays for unity, I mean, I know who I am. I'm, I'm not, you know. I know my strengths and weaknesses and, like, I, I must be missing something. I must be just not getting something. So he caused me to pause in our, in our study. But, in looking at it again, it just seems like many good students of the Bible let this slip by. Um, because of this understandable assumption, uh, settled view that Jesus prays for unity, many godly men uh, interpret it likewise without really scrutinizing the text of Scripture. So that was the first reason why it was just difficult for us to be on the same page, to go against what is so assumed by by so many Christians. A second reason was lacking clarity is um, to establish the position that Jesus, to refute the position that Jesus prays for unity and to establish that unity is the result, the fruit of doctrine and sanctification, we had to go to the fine print. We had to go to the original languages. We had to go to tense voice mood. We had to go to the Hina clauses in John 17. And, you know, I am not a detailed guy. I'm a big picture guy. I like just to preach big picture things. And when I have to go to nitty gritty of things, it's difficult for me. That's not one of my strengths as a, as a pastor and a teacher. And that's the second reason it was difficult last week. I am not a det- I had to grow in that area. Maybe I need to, uh, I don't know, I'll grow in that area. Third reason it was difficult was this. Our original outline of John 17 was wrong. Our original outline. So, it's like, studying the Bible is like cooking a first meal, right? You get a recipe from some recipe book or from online. You Google, like, pork, garlic, Thai food. And you get this recipe, and what do you have to, you have to make this food. But the first time you make it, you don't know if the recipe is accurate or not until you follow the recipe. After the finished product, 
you eat that, you know, meal, then you realize if the recipe is right or wrong. Uh, the difficult part is, I invite all of you to partake of this meal the first time I make it. So if it's a good meal, we all enjoy it. If it's a bad meal, we all have to kind of grind through a difficult meal because the recipe wasn't, you know, entirely accurate. Well, that's what happened. I received this recipe from all these commentators. At the outline of John is 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the apostles. 20 through 26, Jesus prays for future believers. I get this recipe, I make this meal, this big picture meal. But as we exegete verses 20 through 26, particularly 20 and 21, it doesn't fit the outline. The outline says he's praying for future believers. My exegesis tells us he's not praying for believers. He's not praying for unity. And so there was contradiction, conflict, <coughs> and therefore confusion. I have for you in, our, in your handouts the new outline. So I thought about, should we preach John again? John 17, should we start all over? You know, you have that option right after one's first quarter of school, repeat, delete, right? But maybe, we'll, you know, maybe, maybe in the future we'll do, that, we'll do this again. But the outline of John 17, verses 1a through N5, it's a sandwich. He just prays for himself, the first section. Second part of verse 1, all the way to verse 4, Jesus here reveals the purposes, plural, <coughs> in his prayer for himself. He prays for himself, and in the middle, he tells God why he is praying for himself. His motivations behind this prayer, and 1b, he wants God to glorify him so that, that hint of word, so that he might glorify the Father. Verse 2, so that the Son may give eternal life. Verse 3, so that through eternal life, the apostles might know the only true God and Jesus Christ. You see that structure? Our Lord prays for Himself and He tells, the, tells us why He prays for Himself. And then verses 6 and all the way to actually verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus prays for all Christians. Jesus prays for the 11 men that are in that room, upper room discourse, gathered there. At the same time, He's praying for all believers throughout time, throughout history, and He's praying for you and I. And essentially, there's two prayers, right? Two imperative mood verbs, making requests. His first request is verse 11, Keep them in your name. Verses 6 through 9, Christ said, I have given them your name. I have given them your word. The world rejected my revelation of the attributes of God. Your holiness, your grace, your saving nature, your plan of redemption. The world rejected it, but these eleven and all future believers received your word. My prayer is keep them in this word. Keep them in this revelation of who you are, what you have done, and what you, have, what you demand. That's the first prayer. Second prayer is verse 17. Sanctify them in your word. Make them holy. <coughs> Verses 21 through 25. He is not praying for us. He reveals to God, reveals to us His purposes in His prayers for us. His motivations, why He prayed for us, for our, that our doctrine and our life. In verses 21 through 26, there are nine hinnas, nine so that, nine words that translate the English language in order that, nine times in five verses. Verse 21, so that we might be one. Verse 21, so that we might all be in God. Verse 21 again, so that the world might believe that Jesus was sent by God. Verse 22, Jesus gave His glory to us. Verse 22, Second part, so that we might all be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Verse 23, so that we might all be perfectly one. Verse 23 again, there's one hinna, but it's joined by, by an and. So it applies to both. So that it might be perfectly one, and so that the world might know that Jesus was sent by the Father. 
Again, verse 23, So that the world might know the Father loved us, just as the Father loved His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 24, So that we might all be with Him. Verse 24 again, So that we might all see the glory that the Father has given to Him in love before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 26, He wraps up His prayer by making a promise. Prayer purposes. Prayer purposes. Verse 26, Promise. I will continue to make your name known to your people. I will continue to manifest your name. I will continue to declare God's truth. And then there's two, there's two more so that's. Verse 26, one henna again, joined by and, so it applies to both, so that the love with which the Father has loved the Son might be in us, and so that Jesus Himself might be in us, might be with us. So, that's the, what I believe is the right outline for John 17. And so, next week, when we go, th- maybe in two weeks, next week's Christmas, so in two weeks, when we go through verse by verse, in this section of John 17, there will be no contradiction, no conflict, and less confusion, because the parts fit with the whole. Okay? That's our introduction. That's all setting up for two weeks. For the remainder of our time, I want to continue our study on Christian unity from last week <coughs> and continue and just kind of elaborate, uh, review the conclusions that we, we discovered last week and consider the implications of these conclusions. Review the conclusions and consider the implications, the applications from these conclusions. We drew uh, three conclusions last week, that there are three categories of unity, three pillars of Christian unity, positional, relational, and ministerial. Ministerial. Ministerial is an adjective, I have to look it up. It's an adjective word uh, that means anything pertaining to ministers or ministry. Ministerial unity. Now, this is an artificial, uh, you know, um, placement of categories. This is, this is, I'm imposing these categories in the scriptures. It's not found in the text themselves. I am doing this because of our exegetical conclusions from John 17, 20, and 21. Specifically, that doctrine and holiness directly affects and influences unity. That is the main reason why we have these three categories. And I'm, I'm pretty confident. Uh, you can talk to me after the sermon. But as we go through it, it'll make sense to you why we have these three categories of Christian unity. Let's go to the first conclusion and consider its implications. First conclusion is positional unity. Positional unity. It states that all believers, apart from doctrine, apart from the fundamental orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith, if you believe in the deity of Christ, Trinity, right, uh, justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, just the fundamental doctrines within Christendom, apart from other doctrines and apart from practical holiness, all believers are positionally united together by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Positional unity is a current, eternal, and unbreakable reality. And from this conclusion, we can draw at least these five implications. <coughs> Implication number one, <clears throat> all believers must recognize the universal church of Jesus Christ. And that cornerstone is but one local congregation among many true churches of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. We must recognize the universal church. We must not say we are the only true church like Church of Christ or the Witness Lee local church movement. We must acknowledge that we are but one church among many true churches that are scattered Throughout this world, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, Paul said, Just as the body is one and has many members, 
all the members of the body, though many are one body as it is with Christ. Verse 13 is important. In, I'm going to read a lot of verses. Just write them down maybe and um, I'll look at it later. Verse 13, In one spirit we were all baptized in one body. So every Christian throughout the world, throughout history, was baptized by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. And they were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or sp- free, were all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 4, 4-6, through 6, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all and in all. 1 Corinthians 16.19, Romans 16.16, we have these churches greeting one another. All the churches of Christ send greetings to the church in Rome. 1 Corinthians 16.19, the churches in Asia send you greetings to the churches in Corinth. They acknowledge the universal church. Implication number two. We must extend the right hand of fellowship to all those who profess Jesus Christ and love Him with all their heart, soul, and mind. You meet a believer, you have to recognize the, the immediate positional unity that exists between you and that person. If, if that person professes Christ, that person loves the Lord with all, all his heart, soul, and mind, Because we are baptized into one body, you must recognize and greet that person as a brother or sister in Christ. Psalm 119.63 I am a companion to all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. 1 Corinthians 16.20 Greet one another with a holy kiss. (coughs) Stated again in 2 Corinthians 13.12 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Why this holy kiss? Because it was a physical symbol of recognition that you are a member of my family. That we are one. We are one body, one flesh. You are a member of our family because positionally we are one in Christ. Now, you know, our Russian brothers practice this literally. In America, I think a good handshake and a warm hug will do just fine. I shared this before. I've been, I was, when I was in Penza, I was expecting to be kissed by the men of the churches there, and I was ready to go. You know, that's how they want to show Christian love. You know, I'm ready, brothers. But because they knew I was from America, no one gave me the holy kiss. So I was, you know, secretly taking the Lord. Until the last day, we had our going away party, and this other pastor came along with the seminarian student, and he greeted me, and he kissed me on my lips. Now, if I was ready, I would have been alright. But it was unexpected. You should have told me about this Christian unity and holy kiss, but because he didn't prepare me, I started blushing. I was, a, I was almost cheering because I was not ready. But in America, firm handshake will do well, brothers. Right? First Peter 5.14, greet one another the holy kiss as well. Ephesians 6.24, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with undying love. We must warmly embrace fellow believers. Whether we know them or not, relationally, we don't know their background, know their history, know, know their uh, hobbies, likes, dislikes, those things do not matter. If they're a Christian, we warmly, genuinely, with full love, open hearts, we welcome them to our, to our lives and to our fellowship. Implication number three, we must joyfully partake of the communion bread and the cup with all true Christians. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. So if you're a Christian, you're welcome to our communion. We have communion in our second hour service. If you're a believer with us, you don't have, you don't have to hop through, you know, uh, uh, you know, hoops, you don't have to do, a, do any kind of performance. If you profess Christ and you genuinely trust in Christ and love Him, you are welcome to come to our spiritual feast and break one bread and drink one cup, signifying that we're united in the Lord. Implication number four, 
we must acknowledge the unity and equality of all believers and joyfully welcome all believers, completely ignoring race, social status, and gender. First <coughs> Corinthians 12, 12, through 12 and 13, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink from one spirit and one cup. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So in terms of our position in Christ, there is no hierarchy. There is no gradation of a position before Christ where um, Jews are first in line and then the Gentiles and then you know s- slaves and then women, so on and so on. That's the Roman right, hierarchy. Not in the church. In the church we are positionally equal and united in Christ apart. And we ignore all these uh, categories. Implication number five. Because we're united to Christ and to one another positionally, we must refuse to be joined together in any spiritual enterprise with those who are apart from Christ. And this pertains to ministry and marriage. So the Roman Catholic Church wants to join with us in some kind of social cause. Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons want to participate in ministry. We say, no, we cannot participate with you. Because we are in fellowship. We are united with Christ. And the Bible tells us, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The idea of oxen being yoked together. Do not be tied together for one work, for one enterprise, for one effort. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness, says Paul? What accord, what union has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? And you can tell Paul is committed. Paul is fervent about this doctrine. We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them, walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So because we're positionally united with Christ and fellow believers, we do not unite ourselves in any spiritual enterprise with unbelievers. And the application is marriage. Application is you don't date unbelievers, and you don't marry unbelievers. What Christ What does light and darkness have in common? What does Christ have in communion with an idol? You understand that if you are a Christian, you are united to Christ and to us. And if you are marrying an unbeliever, you are united to an unbeliever. Therefore, Christ said you must choose. You're either for me or against me. You can't have union with Christ and the church at the same time have union with Satan and people of darkness, you must choose because of the positional unity all true believers have in Christ. (coughs) Our second conclusion was relational unity. Relational unity. So when the Bible talks about unity, it's referring to three, one of three categories. Positional unity or relational unity or spiritual ministerial unity. The second pillar, second category, is the relational unity of each believer. All believers, regardless of doctrine, regardless of where they are in a spectrum of holiness, as Jason put it, right? we are to pursue relational unity with one another. Right? doesn't matter. In terms of relational unity, Calvinist, Arminian, charismatic, you know, atheist, Right? Secular humanist, agnostic, 
someone who denies the inerrancy of the Bible and fallibility, our responsibility towards them is relational unity. Matthew, John 13, 34, love one another as Christ has loved us. Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies, even if they are enemies of Christ. Our attitude is love. Our attitude is relational. Our, our attitude is humble. It's gentle. It's tender. It's kind. It's gracious. <coughs> 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We're not out there to tell people that they're wrong, to correct theology, to start arguments, to show how much we know about the Bible. We're not to go out there to, to divide people, divide churches, our, our desire to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, says Paul. Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. Christians, Christians with wrong doctrine, Christians who are in sin, and even non-Christians, we must be kind. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil <coughs> after being captured by him to do his will. Right. That's the second pillar of unity, relational unity. It's the onus of every believer, therefore. Every Christian is responsible to pursue, actively pursue these things. Right. Every Christian are to pursue relational unity so that with believers now, I'm not talking about non-believers, but with believers, the positional unity that we have in heaven can be visible on earth. Right? The positional unity, unity that, that we have in, in Christ, in heaven, can be seen by our love for one another, by our patience, by our forbearance, by our, by our gentleness towards one another. It can be visibly seen. Therefore, every Christian, if you're a Christian today, you must be pursuing relational unity. So, implication number one, it is the responsibility of each believer to be baptized. What is baptism? Baptism says, I am with Christ. It's a public declaration saying to your family, to your friends, to the world, I am no longer part of this world. I have crossed the line. I have made a decision. The banner over me is Christ. And I am on Christ's team. I am on Christ's side. Not only be baptized, he or she must join a local church that is submitted to the authority of the Bible. Christ said in Matthew 16, 18 and 19, On this rock, on Christ Himself, on Petra, I will build my church. My church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to my church. Whatever you bound will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. That's God's authority. God's authority. Christ's authority is mediated on earth through the local church. So every believer must run to the church. Must be baptized and join a local church. Immediately. Colossians 1.18 He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the local church. Therefore, Christians flock to it because they want to submit to Christ. Implication number two, it is the responsibility of each believer to gather together for the purposes of worship, prayer, study of the Word, fellowship, and encouragement as often as possible. It is your responsibility to pursue the gathering of the church for these purposes as often as possible, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, prioritizing your time with fellow Christians so that you might worship together, so that you might pray together, so that you might study the Word and instruct one another, so that you might encourage one another while the day draws near. Right? Because we must actively pursue relational unity with other Christians. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves <coughs> to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, notice there, they devoted themselves. They committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, baking bread and prayers. 
consider Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, who holds all things together, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God gave gifts to the church. God gave able men as leaders in the church that they might equip the church for works of service so the church might build each other up and grow and mature to the head who is Christ. Therefore, that must be our commitment, our pursuit to be with the church, to worship, study, fellowship with the church as often as possible. <coughs> Implication three is tied to the second. It is the responsibility of each believer to not forsake the assembly of believers in a lo- local congregation under the oversight of elders, pastors, and shepherds. Listening to sermons online is not, is not, is not enough. Uh, listening to sermons you know, via TV shows or on the radio or reading Christian books, having a church onto yourself is not God's will. It is God's will for you to gather together in a local congregation under the oversight of elders, shepherds, and teachers. Acts 1.14 All these with one accord were devoting themselves to, to prayer and they were together. Acts 2.1 When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Hebrews 10.24.25 Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another <coughs> and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we are not to neglect corporate gathering. We are to pursue gathering of fellow believers for the purpose of mutual encouragement. Implication number four, it is the responsibility of each believer to first seek unity with the elders and shepherds of the church by respecting them and submitting to their leadership, submitting to their doctrine. Believers get together, and where do they find their unity? Where do they rally around? Who do they rally around? Right? The, the strongest guy? Right? The oldest guy? Right? The tallest guy? Or the, the, the sister that serves the most? What is the rallying point in which they gather and submit themselves and find their unity. The Bible says it is around the elders of the church. So within the church, your first unity is with the leaders of the church, is with the elders, and then with the body at large. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, remember them, consider them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You should consider the lifestyle of the elders. Consider their instruction. Consider their doctrine. (coughs) Consider their disciplines, their family, their habits, their preferences, their convictions. And after considering these things, you imitate their example. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. You submit to us and entrust your submission to us because why? Because we have to give an account before God. And God will not be mocked. God will make everything right. God will make everything equal, everything beautiful. Knowing that day of reckoning is coming where we will be judged with a stricter judgment, our responsibility is to submit to the elders. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Everyone memorize verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. We should all repeat that like ten times today. For that would be of no advantage to you. 
unity with believers, but disunity with elders or shepherds is a false unity. Right? In a flock meeting, flock group, if you circumvent your flock shepherd and you have no unity with him, but you think you have unity because you have unity with fellow Christians, fellow members of that flock, that's a false unity. If you say you have unity with the church here, with Christians here, you love and united with them, but you hate the elders, you can't stand us, you despise our instruction, right? You want to rebel against our leadership? There is no unity. Because the first unity starts with us. It's like Elizabeth saying, she's united in our family, even though she hates dad but loves Emma. Right? We have two daughters. That would be absurd. Elizabeth, your first responsibility, priority is to parents and then your sister, likewise in the church. And this is how Satan attacks especially young men. Right? Prompting them in their pride <coughs> to not submit to the elders. 1 Peter 5, 5-9. 1 Peter 5. Peter, he was a young man once. He was the only man bold enough to say to Jesus' face he was wrong. Man, I mean, just, I mean, incredible arrogance. I mean, just talk about self-deception. He said, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm not going to deny you. You don't know what you're talking about. You, You need me. Let me protect you. I mean, he corrected Jesus to his face. So he knows the heart of a young man and the, the pride that, that's inc- that he's inclined towards. And so he, he, he sets apart younger men, you who are younger, younger men and women, particularly young men, be subject to the elders. Subject to the elders. And he uses a beautiful metaphor here, clothe yourselves. Right? Put on socks, put on you know, you know, pants, put on a belt, put on a shirt, put on a jacket, put on a hat. Clothe yourselves with humility because God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. <coughs> humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I know what it's like. I know how hard it is to submit. Right? I have to submit. And I was a young man once. And you might say, oh, I have to follow my Bible study leader. Oh, I have to listen to him. I have to... You know, consider my uh, flock shepherd. I have to listen to the elders. I know I can be a difficult thing. And we make, we're not saying follow us like, you know, authoritatively. But consider our counsel. Consider our leadership. I know it's a difficult thing. That's why Peter says, cast all your anxieties on Him. God knows. God knows your situation. And God cares for you. Pray. Instead of becoming proud and resisting leadership... Submit to leadership, but pray to God for help and cast your burdens upon Him where He cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded, young men. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And if he can create division between you and your leader, between you and your shepherd, between you and your elder, his job is done. You know, mission accomplished. You know, a person is devoured. Because once that relationship is severed, once there's a disunity there, disunity with the church is an afterthought. It's a foregone conclusion. Implication number five. <coughs> I like this one. It is the responsibility of each believer to instruct, to exhort, and encourage one another in the faith. Have you considered that? That every single believer here has a ministry? That you are to actively pursue this every day? Particularly on the Lord's Day? Particularly when we gather together? It is your job to teach the Word of God. It is your job to exhort with the Word of God. It is your responsibility to encourage one another in the faith. It is not just the pastor's job where you come at church and just soak it all in. It is not the flock shepherd's job where you go to flock and just sit back and relax and just listen and, and soak it all in. No, you have to come prepared, prepared and equipped, prepared and ready to teach, to instruct, to encourage and exhort. Colossians three fifteen through 17 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he's talking to all believers, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another with these words. <coughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Right? When should we exhort? If it's today, you exhort one another. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.14-15, Everyone, every Christian needs to be discerning, needs to understand who is who's being lazy, who is being faint-hearted, and who is unruly. You need to discern that this person being lazy, I need to rebuke this person. Is this person just weak as a, in his faith? Does he need encouragement? I need to encourage him. Is this person being unruly? I need to correct this person and confront his or her sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, 15. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. <coughs> submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Responsibility of all believers to teach. Implication number 6. Five more to go here. It is the responsibility of each believer to pursue that which leads to peace and unity in the body of believers. Each of us is responsible to pursue peace with one another. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So we place a high premium on relational unity. Right? So we set aside petty differences. We set aside petty opinions. We set aside shallow convictions, personal convictions that have no ties to godliness in the scriptures all for the sake of pursuing unity. Implication number seven. <coughs> it is the responsibility of each believer to not judge and stumble one another in disputable, non-biblical matters. Right? We are to judge one another according to the word of God but not outside the Scriptures. Not only that, we are to make sure we don't stumble one another because of extra-biblical convictions, non-biblical convictions. Romans 14, 1-4, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel with him over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Romans 14.13 Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Right. Implication number eight. It is the responsibility of each believer <coughs> to pursue fellowship and to diligently practice the one another commands of Scripture. There are so many one another commands, right? You need to love one another. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weeping with those who weep. You need to do that. You need to, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. You need to confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another, the Bible says. You must serve one another. A Christian life is not just attending church, attending flock. You must pursue fulfilling the one another commands. As a believer... Number nine, this is a tough one. 
It is the responsibility of each believer to first confront moral and doctrinal sins in his or her life, own life, and then privately confront sins in one another. So, you know, what causes relational division in the church? You know, say these magical words, it's me, right? If you have a problem with any believer in the church, in the universal church, the person with the issue is you. Take a long look at that mirror. So you must start with yourself, confronting sin in your own heart. Matthew 7, 3-5 Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? Right? Christ says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your own brother's eye. Therefore, it is the responsibility of every believer to look into himself soberly with the Word of God. Right? Not the mirror of God's Word. Not just the regular mirror, but that 50-time magnifying mirror that they have. Now, sisters, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And some of those things have lights. You can turn it on and lights for the rest of light on you and you can see all the blackheads on your nose. You can see every wrinkle, every even eyelash is out of place. Guys, have, guys don't use that. You know, we look at from far away, we look good, we're happy. Sisters, well, we need to follow the, <laughs> the model of the sisters and look at the Word of God with that kind of scrutiny at ourselves. And look at that plank that is coming out of our own eye. So confront our moral sins. Confront our own doctrinal error. Start there. That is, we must actively pursue that because if that is there, we're going to have division in the church. Every little thing is going to offend you. Every little thing is going to hurt you. Every little thing because your pride, your self-centeredness, your selfishness will take root and every little thing will cause you to be embittered towards others. Start with yourself. And then, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. <coughs> if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take two or three others. If you listen, if he listens, you won your brother. If not, tell the church. If he listens, repent it. Great. If he does not repent, treat him as a tax collector, as a Gentile. You expel him from your church. Alright. Galatians 2, 11-14. Paul talked about this in the terms of doctrinal sins. Where Peter was being hypocritical, he was uh, aligning himself with Judaizers and telling the Gentiles, if they want to be Christians, you have to be Jews first. What did Paul do to Peter, one of the leaders of the apostles? Apostle Paul, he's the man. I mean, he has no fear of man. Alright, he's a man of courage and conviction. He opposed Peter to his face publicly because his sins were committed in public. And he opposed it to his face and said, you hypocrite. You are leading people astray, not by a moral sin, but by a doctrinal error. By telling Gentiles that they must obey Jewish laws in order to be a Christian. That is wrong. That is unbiblical and that is not of Christ. Why did he do that? Because it is a responsibility of all believers <coughs> to confront moral sins, doctrinal sins in themselves first and then others. Number 10, it is the responsibility of each believer to passionately reconcile, restore, and forgive fellow Christians. Right. Reconcile, restore, and forgive fellow Christians. It is not just the pastor's job, the shepherd's job to go after the straying sheep. It is your responsibility. If you notice a brother is not here, or a sister is not here, you're like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Right? I really didn't, you know... You know, like him anyways, or she wasn't that close to me. No, it's our responsibility to actively pursue anyone who's straying from Christ. Galatians 6 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual must restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then when the person confesses, you are to forgive. 
Right, Colossians 3, forgive one another, just as in Christ, Christ forgave you, God forgave you. Two more implications from this. It is the responsibility to practice, practically love fellow Christians by good works, service, and encouragement. We are to pursue practical love. Right? Practical love. I mean, for those who are ailing, for those who... You know, new new moms in the church with that Meals on Wheels ministry. And people tell us that's the most precious ministry in Cornerstone, right? Equal to the pulpit ministry. Equal to, you know, flock ministry. When they bring that meal over, you know, mom has stayed up all night, haven't got any sleep, baby's crying, and, you know, dad is working full time, and someone in the church brings over a nice, warm, prepared meal. Man, that's so helpful. When someone is ill and someone gives them a call, gives them an email or visits them and prays for them, man, that is, that is precious. Right? Someone extends his life and opens his home as hospitality and welcomes you into their home and their fellowship. Right? That is the kind of love that we are to abound in. John 13, 34. <coughs> New commandment I give to you that you love one another. Galatians 6, 10. Um... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us abound in what good works, especially to fellow Christians, especially to fellow believers. And Romans 12:15. this is a hard one, is it not? Rejoicing with those who rejoice. I, I, you know, in the world, you can't really rejoice because... If, if it doesn't involve them, they're not really happy with you. And if you weep, the world, they don't want to hear your problems. Unless you pay them $50 for half an hour. Uh, they don't want to hear, you know, your burdens. Believers. That's our ministry. Right? Nothing could happen to us, but something could happen to you. We genuinely rejoice over God's blessing upon your life. Right? Wow, finances are great. My finances are not, aren't great, but I'll truly rejoice with you. Right. You got a new job? I just lost my job, but I'll rejoice with you. Right. You know, you're getting married. You have children. Right. God's blessed you with these things. I genuinely rejoice with you. Same, and we weep with those who weep. Right. We want to be happy. We want to live a carefree life. There are people in the church who are burdened, who are weighed down, who are filled with sorrow. We go alongside them, and like the first few chapters of Job, we weep with them. Right? We don't assume to know and, and teach, teach and, and, and rebuke and correct. When they're weeping, all we do is we cry with them. We are sorrowful with them. We are burdened, burdened with them. Relational unity. Implication number 12. Final one, and then we'll close. <clears throat> the lack of unity and love for fellow Christians is one of the foremost evidences of a false conversion. If the pursuit of relational unity doesn't concern you at all, and these 12 implications, they're nice, they're good to know, but that's not the heartbeat of your life. Loving fellow Christians, pursuing relational unity with them is not a priority and a concern for you. That's one of the foremost evidences that you are not a Christian. That you don't have this heart because you still have a heart of stone. That you, are, that you had a conversion, but it was a false conversion. You professed faith, but it was a disingenuous, disingenuous profession of faith. Because the foremost evidences of true faith in Christ is love for one another. Love for Christians. 1 John 2, 9-11 Whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever hates his brother <coughs> is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's how deceived he is. That's how blind he is. He lives in darkness, walks in darkness, has no idea where he is going if he does not love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the Christians, love the brethren. 
We love the church. We know we're Christians because we love the church. 1 John 3, 16-18 By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren, for the church. You say, I love Christ, I'll die for Christ, but I won't die for the church. That's absurd. That's contradictory. Christ died for the church on our behalf. We follow Christ's example. Therefore, we are to lay down our lives for one another. But if you separate Christ and His church, and you say, I will die for Christ, but not for the church, it is undermining the Word of God and evidence that your profession quite possibly can be a false conversion, a false profession. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in deed and in truth. Let us practically love one another. First John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. I really do have five more pages, but I will end it here because we got, I think, a lot for us to chew on. Um, one, maybe just applicate. A lot, all these are applications. One final thought, just to close our time. You want to encourage the elders of this church. You want to encourage your shepherds, your ministry leaders. You want to encourage us to study more, pray more for you, set a greater example to give our lives more for the church, one key way to encourage the leaders is through relational unity. Right. Paul said to Philippians 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, if you've been encouraged in any way, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord, unity, and one in mind. You want to completely encourage me. Right? If you've been encouraged by me in any way, you want to encourage me, complete my joy by being united. Right? Nothing, really, you know, not nothing, but several things discourage elders. Several things discourage my heart. One of the major ones is when there's relational conflict in the church. Relational division. I think I can say this now because I don't know of any division in the church. You probably tell me after the sermon, oh, you, know, you convicted us because, you know. But as, of, as far as I know, there isn't any. That encourages me. But anything discourages your leaders, <coughs> discourages me when there's disagreement. And it's not over doctrine. It's not over moral sin. It's over petty, shallow, sinful things. Right? Pursue relational unity. Right? To encourage your leaders and to glorify Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you and praise you. We see such a model of unity in the Godhead. We see such unity in how God the Father loved the Son and gave the elect to, to Him. And we see the love and unity that the Son had to, to the Father by voluntarily going to the cross, this place of suffering and humiliation, because He was submitting Himself to the Father. And we see the Father's love in response to the Son's act of obedience by giving Him the name above all names, King of kings and the Lord of lords, exalting Him and restoring to Him His full glory. And we see the Holy Spirit in the background, administering and His transaction, so that the believers might see Christ in His full glory and majesty. What an example we have in the Godhead for all Christians, for all believers here. Oh Lord, um, may we understand clearly these truths. And may these truths be alive in our hearts. May they not be just cold truths uh, stored in our memory banks. But may they be fire in our bones. 
May they be the passions of our lives. May it burn within us. And may the church and the world see the positional reality, positional unity made real by our genuine and heartfelt love for one another. Lord, may John 17 be a prayer that is lived out in our lives that the world might see this prayer walking, talking, moving, uh, serving, <coughs> dynamically alive in the lives of, of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.